to go back. I know. To hell. You know nothing. Hell is only a word. The reality is much, much worse. Let me show you. Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today we will be discussing Event Horizon, the film and what you can get from it for gaming. But before that, we've been in the unusual situation of all playing in the same game. Yes, yeah, we've um, all been along at the Milton Keynes Club, which is something that hasn't happened for some time. It's like for a while, Paul, you and I were taking shifts and going to the club. As soon as you started going again, I stopped. (laughs) Well, thank you for that, (laughs) Scott. Yeah, 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 you're welcome. (laughs) There's me constantly growling in the corner with a treasurer box. (laughs) Yeah, Matt's the treasurer at the local club. Forever yep. taking people's money and uh, shaking them upside down until something falls out. Yeah, you, you are the responsible adult. <laughs> You're doomed. You're all doomed. <laughs> so anyway, Scott has taken a turn at the uh, the GM's table and is running the chapter from Poison Tree, yes, the campaign play- that we're writing. The three of us are all working on for Pelgrane Press. Yeah, yeah, we've been playtesting the penultimate chapter there, which is the one that's set in 1967 California, particularly Berkeley. Yeah, it's been glorious chaos so far. So much drugs. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only thing that gets me through the sessions, Matt. (laughs) Yes, I'm very happy with the way it's going and and, can't wait to see how it wraps up because I haven't got a fucking clue. There'll be a body count. There always will There there already (laughs) is. You you went on a murder spree last session just going around killing random NPCs. I I, I deny it. It was hardly... Two people is hardly a murder spree, Scott. And, And anyway... They were, they, were, they were kind of asking for it, right? <laughs> Keep telling yourself that, Paul. One of them was holding some kind of alien weapon, and the other one had got green stuff coming out of them. I shot that's three, never good, I shot him three times not, in the head, and he still got up. That was not murder. And I'm not talking about heavy cold. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, any news on the Kickstarter front, Matt? I believe there is. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of bits. Um, since our last recording... Um, the Call of Cthulhu Metal Dice Kickstarter seems to be going pretty, pretty well. Oh, yeah. Um, there are over, at the time of recording, over $160,000 uh, raised. So well and truly blown away their goals. That's that's a lot of dice. Yeah, that is. Um, especially as the the main, 60, I think, $69 pledge, um, the investigator level that would originally have just got you one set of metal dice, now gives you that plus a bag and then four other plastic dice sets that they're releasing as part of the campaign as well. So you've got mm. an Azathoth, Nyarlathotep, Cthulhu, and Hasta dice set as well. So, then, of course, immediately seeing Hasta, I had to pledge to get two of them. <laughs> <laughs> and when does that end, Matt? It's the 15th of April, so comes up this time, at the time of recording, this time next week, which will be the Sunday after the episode's released. Cool. So you've got a few days to get on board with that if if you want some shiny, uh, clunky dice. And we'll link to that on the show notes. Mm-hmm. There's also, in a break from our normal Cthuloid Kickstarter news, long time ago, in a childhood far, far away, um, I did actually used to play computer games. But those of you of an age will probably remember the seventh guest in the eleventh hour. Uh, nice, good old traditional atmospheric horror games, lots of puzzles, the kind of thing I love to see at the game table. There is a seventh guest board game currently being funded. 
So how, how does this work? How, how does it translate into being a board game? Uh, lots of cards with lots of puzzles in it. From what I can tell, one player will draw a card and then corresponding to where their player moves in the house. And then they will pose the riddle on the card to the other player to say, like, there's one example there of if person A eats a cake within an hour, person 2 eats the cake but takes two hours, if they both eat at the same time, how long would it take them to finish the cake? You then have a list of hints beneath it, um, so that it gives you an idea of what well, you think of it as percentages, and if you think yeah. of it as like minutes an hour and such, and then the answer written at the bottom of the card. But obviously, okay. then player can't see the answer of the card because it's being read to by another player. But yeah, it uses the same floor plans of the house. You have miniatures of the original seven guests um, that turned up to the house, plus the white lady ghost uh, moves, uh, that moves around in the um, uh, film bites that you have in the in the original game. And yeah, it looks pretty good. It's designed by the original creators. Cool. After, after they failed to do the uh, third instalment computer game on Kickstarter either last year or year before. Because tie in, ties in, hopefully, with the release of the Seventh Guest TV series that they're doing online. All right. <laughs> that, that seems to have become a thing now, doesn't it? That you know, if you can't get the backing to do something as a video game, you do it as a board game, because that's, that's how Cthulhu Wars started. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So Cthulhu World Combat became Cthulhu Wars. Hmm. hmm. And now takes up most of the top of my wardrobe. <laughs> Sandy's a trendsetter. <laughs> and one final thing. Uh, we've seen a number of actual play recordings recently uh, of things that we've worked on, uh, scenarios that we've written or co-authored. We were originally just going to talk about some of them, but we've realised that there are so many of them that we probably should start cataloguing them on the website. At some point around the time this episode goes out, I will put up a new page up on blasphemoustomes.com that links to a number of AP recordings of you know things like Dockside Dog seems to have been played an awful lot. Yeah, Dockside Dog's had a few plays by various groups, yep. uh, including How We Roll and Into the Darkness, and Blackwater Creek, yep. and you've had some as well, right, yep. Matt? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, Midnight Sunrise has just finished with ga- um, on the Games from the Front podcast. And Amidst the Ancient Trees. I yeah, think. Into yeah. the Darkness did a great run-through of that. And if you speak French, there's a great run-through of uh, Curse of Nineveh uh, going on at the moment, so I'll link to that as well. Plus also, um, our good friend Nick Nicario from... Uh, Microphones of Madness is doing the Two-Headed Serpent currently. Yeah, yeah, that's that's been really interesting to listen to. There are only three episodes in, and you know, Nick's done something which took me quite by surprise, which is he's uh, sort of revealed a fairly big secret fairly early on, much earlier than we did in our playtests. Yeah, I really want to see how that impacts the rest of the game because I, I think it's going to transform the entire thing. Yeah, I think it's worth saying that when you listen to these actual play recordings, sometimes they're they're quite different to the way we envisaged it when we wrote it. Mm. And that's that's quite an interesting thing. I mean, it's, it's quite an exciting thing for us as authors to sort of oh, see yeah. people do different things with our work. But I think as a listener to it, I'm concerned that, you know, the listeners don't listen to it and think, oh, that's how I need to do it. You know, you need to listen to it and sort of take that into account and sort of think, oh, that's one way I could do it. But, you know, there are lots of other ways. Mm. And now an important word from Scott. And I suppose that would be the Lovecraftian word of the... Um Week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. This week, our word is void, leaving a big long gap. Ah, I see we did that. Cunning. Uh huh. This can be a noun, verb, or adjective. Just because Scott wants me to work three times as hard. 
We'll focus on the noun, as that's what Lovecraft used. One. A. An empty space. Hmm. B. A vacuum. Two. An open space or a break in continuity. A gap. Three. A feeling or state of emptiness, loneliness, or loss. Three just seems like a constant state of being, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> it does. This is a cold, uncaring universe. And that sort of ties in a little bit with the way Lovecraft used void. I mean, void is a, a, a pretty simple word for our Lovecraftian word of the week. It's one of the shortest ones we've chosen. But it's, as with a few of our other choices, it's more down to the way Lovecraft used it than it being a particularly fancy word. One that that he kept going back to, uh, that represents these these huge, vast, open spaces that seem to populate Lovecraft stories. Well, I think if you say space or something like that, that evokes a, a sense of wonder. Whereas the void, it's hard to have a sense of wonder about the void. It's just yeah. a void. It's There's cold. No, nothing in it. Yeah, cold, cold, dark, uncaring, unforgiving. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and uh, I mean Lovecraft. You know, kept going back to this. I mean, he used it uh, forty-four times in his his work. I mean, including the plural voids, but mostly just void. And this, uh, when I was going through uh, his fiction, looking for examples to use, it seemed like a significant number of times when he was he was referring to voids. Um, he was referring to the court of Azathoth. It's something that he keeps bringing back over and over again in his fiction. I'm kind of surprised how often and. Uh, how many different stories it comes up. And it's always very much the same description. A couple of times I've, I've picked out passages for the word of the week, thinking, uh, oh, hang on, you know, we've done this one before. But no, it's just a subtly different version of it from a different story. <laughs> you can't get enough of Azathoth. Let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word void in his writings. From The Lurking Fear... As I shivered and brooded on the casting of that brain-blasting shadow, I knew that I had at last pried out one of Earth's supreme horrors, one of those nameless blights of outer voids whose faint demon scratchings we sometimes hear on the farthest rim of space, yet from which our own finite vision has given us a merciful immunity." And from the shadow out of time. Dormant, rudimentary senses seem to start into vitality within me, telling of pits and voids peopled by floating horrors and leading to sunless crags and oceans and teeming cities of windowless basalt towers upon which no light ever shone. And from the dream quest of unknown Kadath. And before the day was done, Carter saw that the steersman could have no other goal than the basalt pillars of the West, beyond which simple folk say splendid Cathuria lies, but which wise dreamers well know are the gates of a monstrous cataract, wherein the oceans of Earth's dreamland drop wholly to abysmal nothingness and shoot through the empty spaces toward other worlds and other stars and the awful voids outside the ordered universe where the demon sultan Azathoth gnaws hungrily in chaos amid pounding and piping and the hellish dancing of the other gods, blind, voiceless, tenebrous and mindless, with their soul and messenger, Neartholotep. And now on to our main topic, Event Horizon. What 
We won't need eyes to see. What are you talking about? I created the Event Horizon to reach the stars. But she's gone much, much farther than that. She tore a hole in our universe, a gateway to another dimension. So, a film from way back in 1997. <laughs> <laughs> no. Way back. Scott yeah. and I were like, this isn't very old, is it? Oh, yeah, it's 20 years old. Yeah, we both saw it at the cinema when yeah. it first came out. And, yeah, I don't know about you, I thought it was a fairly recent film. And, yeah, just, just the idea that 1997 was 20 years ago. That's all wrong. Yeah, I was about to say it makes me feel old, but no. No, if I'm honest, being old makes me feel old. I remember being at school when this came out. Fuck off, Matt. Just fuck right <laughs> off. Because <laughs> no, I remember it because a guy came, um, a guy was talking to me. He was a big sci-fi fan, and we always used to bump into each other in the uh, in the playground. And he was <laughs> looking at Scott's reaction. <laughs> and I just remember him quoting the sec- uh, the piece that Weir says later of like, "Yep, we're going home. I am home." And I just remember that guy quoting that line in the, in the playground. <laughs> I, I just realised you were too young to see this at the cinema, weren't oh, you? Yeah, yeah, I know. My it, so was my friend, and it didn't stop him. <laughs> Yeah, because this was released in the UK with an 18 certificate. Yeah. And yeah. you would have been, what, 15 then? Uh, I would be uh, forcing me to do maths. 17. It's 20 years ago, Matt. Take 20 off your age. So you That'd be 13. Oh. Oh, God. You can go off, people. <laughs> yeah. So, directed by Paul W.S. Anderson of Resident Evil and Mortal Kombat fame. Fame might be overstating well, it with Mortal Kombat. But, oh, no, notoriety. <laughs> yeah. But but no, I mean, the Resident Evil films have been, you know, which he did after this, have been comparatively successful. And this was back in the days when he was just known as Paul Anderson, before the other Paul Anderson came along, and he had to put the WS in his name to differentiate him. So originally pitched as The Shining in Space, which, yeah, I could kind of see that. There's no kid doing anything weird with his finger and saying that he's talking to him, though. Uh, no, but there are weird things that are equally strange, I suppose. And there are gallons of unnecessary blood that pour out of places. So, yes, it does have that lifter effect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no furries. <laughs> I didn't realise this until I was reading over it, yeah, reading over the IMDb entry afterwards. But it was an absolute bomb at the box office. I mean, it was quite an expensive film to make. I think, you know, the budget was something like $60 million. Yeah, it looked like at least $60. Yeah. <laughs> It made, I think, something like twenty-seven million, and it, it got panned by the huh. critics when it came I, out. I remember quite a lot of people going to see it at the time. That yeah. I knew, but you were the only people that went to see it. Apparently. Well, I did take um, Lucy, my wife, and another friend to see it. I thought it was just uh, a sci-fi film. I didn't realise it was a horror sci-fi. So I was like, "Oh, there's this great sci-fi film, Event Horizon." I don't really know much about it, but you know, it's got a good cast. Let's go see that. And as it sort of unfolded, I could sort of sense them sat next to me. They're not really horror fans. I was like, "Oh dear, what have I taken?" You can feel, feel the waves of heat coming off yeah. towards you. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, I, I remember taking my girlfriend at the time to see it, and having almost exactly the flip side experience in that she liked horror films but not science fiction films. And I said, "Yeah, sort of got SF trappings, but from what I." understand it's a horror film and she hated it because it was too science fiction i guess it is that unusual thing Mm. an actual sci-fi horror i I would think of alien for example but i think that's more sci-fi than horror i would have said alien is more horror than sci-fi well Um, yeah yeah. no i'd I'd be with the it's more sci-fi there we win two to one (laughs) outvoted (laughs) 
It's a monster it movie. Because it doesn't have supernatural trappings. No, but it's a monster movie that happens to take place on a spaceship. Yeah. yeah. But there's a hell of a lot of spaceship. The but, ratio yeah. is in our favour. <laughs> and Ash is a goddamn robot. How much more sci-fi can you get? Oh, yeah. Spo- spoilers, Matt. Spoilers. <laughs> so, some people might not have seen this film that came out 28 years, 38 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, screw them. <laughs> What's in the core? This is the gateway. Now, these three magnetic rings, when they align, it creates an artificial black hole which allows the ship to travel to any point in space. A black hole, the most destructive force in the universe. And you've created one. Absolutely, yes, because we can use that immense power to bend space-time. Look, it'll take the Lewis and Clark a thousand years to reach our nearest star. But the event horizon could be there in a day. Our film kicks off in 2047, which... Seemed like a long time when this came out. Oh, don't start. <laughs> yeah. You're skipping a bit because what's the first? What's the line before that? Oh, what was that, Matt? It says 2015, per- first permanent base established on the moon. Oh yeah. It's oh, like yes. I want my fucking hoverboards and I want my base on the moon. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Space 1999 lied, <laughs> no. but you know we've forgiven that. But have we? Have we really bought? Well, we, you got to put these things behind you, Scott. You can't keep on going over the same old ground. <laughs> So 2047, a signal is received from the event horizon, this experimental ship that has now suddenly appeared outside Neptune. That's one thing, a line that comes up, think about it, that it's in this decaying orbit around Neptune, Mm. is what they say. Yes. Well, they've had the signal for a little bit because they've had to establish that everything's co-black by the NSA, that they've analysed this, they've decided to send a team out. It then takes 56 days for the team to get there. That must be a really slowly decaying orbit well, if it's still be. in orbit at that point. It can be. A decaying orbit can take can be a very, very, very slow thing. It's not necessarily yeah. like plummeting. Yeah, I mean the, if you think the, I mean if you think about satellites orbiting the Earth, you know, most of them are in decaying orbits. I mean they, they eventually, you know, come into the atmosphere, burn up and crash down to Earth. Well, like Skylab did. But it just took something like thirty years for that to happen. I see. That you are learning some bit sci fi, uh, some science here, folks. Oh, yeah, not, you're not learning sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might be learning some science here. You may be learning some fiction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just always thought the way they interpreted it means that it was going to, oh, it's decaying, it's going to be in some danger ah, of falling, right, into the, yes. falling into the planet, and it doesn't. Well, eventually, yeah. yes. Yeah, d- danger of falling into the planet, yes. Imminent danger, not no. so much. <laughs> As we will learn, if it had been more imminent, it might have been a better film. <laughs> it might have been better for all concerned i was gonna say but so anyway our cast is upon the rescue vessel the lewis and clark the already fairly large crew is joined by dr william weir played wonderfully by sam neill we're first introduced to him in a scene before this all happens which takes place on board a space station where he encounters a vision of some woman who we later discover is his dead wife and then there's this this fantastic shot of him looking out the window of the space station and the camera zooming away very uh, nausea or motion sickness inducing of well what the hell what is up ah! yeah apparently that shot consumed a huge amount of the special effects budget just for that one shot for something that really has no impact on the rest of the film hmm. <laughs> which is I, I don't know quite bizarre to me well they didn't spare the budget on uh, on the on the cast no um yeah. they, they spent a lot on the cast because we've got uh, jason isaacs as the doctor yep uh, as we said we've got sam neill as dr weir we've got uh, lawrence fishburne as captain miller 
Yeah. Uh, Sean okay. Pertwee, he's in there as well. Yeah, Jolie Richardson. Yeah, good cast here. Yeah. And before long, Dr. Weir is briefing the crew of the Event Horizon on what their, their mission is. And what the mission of the Event Horizon was, to test an experimental gravity drive. Yeah. Who Dr. Weir is, is one of the designers of. Yeah, I mean, he sort of explains that the purpose of the drive was to make interstellar travel possible. They accept the fact in this film that faster-than-light travel is not a thing. Hmm. They've created this drive which basically creates wormholes. It's got a um, an artificial singularity on board that punches a hole through space-time, and they just pop out the other side. There's a lot of exposition in this film as well, isn't there? Where yeah. uh, Sam Neill gets a piece of paper and he's kind of folding it over and punching a pen through it to demonstrate what a wormhole is. To be fair, I mean, that whole scene there probably takes about 30 seconds, and it does... I, for, I imagine for most of the audience who wouldn't necessarily be either science nerds or science fiction, you know, hardcore science fiction fans, that actually is a fairly important thing to establish. So it doesn't feel too gratuitous. No, with, no. With, with the great line from the comic of relief, fuck layman's terms, do you speak English? <laughs> oh, yes, that's yeah. right. Because these are bloody astronauts. I mean, even even on, on this Lewis and Clark ship, you know, to be an astronaut now, you've got to be incredibly clever as well as being incredibly physically able these guys should have physics degrees and all that, and they're, they're demanding it be, like, in the lowest of layman's terms. <laughs> then um, Dr. Weir says that they had a, a message that they'd decoded that had come through from the lost ship, the Event Horizon, but, you know, it was all, uh, it was all in Latin. And he, he uh, does he play it or he reads it out or something? And yeah. um, Jason Isaacs, the, the doctor, sort of decodes it and translates it. Liberate me. me. Liberate me. Save, 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 save me. us. Save, save me. me. Now, it did feel like nobody had actually translated this before. That you know, well, if there was there nobody I, back on Earth that could translate Latin? Well, I, th- I think it was the fact that you know the, this, the signal was so garbled that they'd only just managed to extract that much out of it. And they, they well, were still, whilst they're in transit, I think so. Yeah, and oh, they, okay. they, 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 they were still stripping away bits of it, trying to get to the rest of it, which becomes an important plot point later yeah, on. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, it is a bit of a conceit and, you know, not, not a very deft one. <laughs> so the crew basically get into these um, transit pods, which are these, these canisters that are filled with liquid that stop the extreme G-forces of the acceleration from just squashing them like bugs. Or, or as Jason Isaacs put it, uh, puts it quite eloquently, if you weren't in one of these things, the G-force would liquefy your skeleton. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Which, which I, I can imagine would be inadvisable. It certainly put a crimp on my day. They get into the pods and, and yeah, I think it's, uh, Dr. Weir has some kind of hallucinations again of his wife. Yeah. Yeah, his wife in this has no eyes. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Which seems uh, to be a bit of a theme Yes. in the bad tripology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they, there's a degree I should have done. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and they zoom through space and end up at the event horizon. Am I skipping anything there? Particularly? No, I mean, no, no, there's okay. a bit of atmosphere as they yeah. go through all the clouds and, and almost ram into the ship and stuff like that. But it's, and they dock, it's, pretty, it's pretty gratuitous. They, they, they dock with the event horizon. And I think one of the first things that happens as they board the event horizon is they, they come into this uh, long corridor. And what are those things on the floor? Oh, those are the explosive bolts that will destroy, uh, you know, this whole corridor if, uh, if, if it was required. Hmm. 
plot point. Yeah. Wonder if that'll ever happen. <laughs> yeah, and, and just to explain, you know, that corridor. Th- this ship is huge. I mean, it's it's got this long central corridor that runs down, which is a fairly thin structure, and it's got crew quarters and so on down at one end and down at the other. It's got. Ooh, I don't know science stuff. It's all the engineering and it's yeah. it's got the meat grinder. <laughs> it's got the meat. We'll the, get the, to the meat grinder. The unnecessary meat grinder. In fact, <laughs> it's not all the crew that goes on board the Event Horizon at this stage. It's just a, a landing party, and uh, some of the ones staying behind are doing scans on board, and they're scanning for life signs, and they can't see any individual survivors, but they are getting some kind of weird life reading from all over the ship. It's as if the ship's alive, but we're not going to say that. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure that's, there's a perfectly rational explanation for that. It's not sinister in the slightest. Nah. This film seems to do a great job of separating the player characters, for want of a better term. You know, they're all together doing this thing. Cut scene, next scene, there's somebody just sort of wandering around on their own. Like... Why are they doing this on their own? Well, I don't know. I, to be fair, it is sort of rational in this, in that you know, they, they're getting on board the ship, they're trying to do this as quickly as possible, so they're splitting up to cover different areas in this large ship. We can cover more ground that way. Yes, well, exactly. I, <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing, of course, is when they go on board the ship, there is no gravity or atmosphere. Yes. So, you know, I, that was quite cool, I it, thought. It was, actually, because I, considering this was made in 1997, the CGI in it... I, was okay. Can, yeah, I mean, you you can tell it's CGI. I mean, you've got objects spinning in space. You've got fluids spinning in mm. space at some stage, and some of it. I mean, it looks a little ropey by today's standards. But I mean, when you consider it's twenty years ago, it doesn't look bad. Hmm. The one guy turns up at the this weird corridor, which is kind of just like this, like a sideways cylindrical uh, passage with these kind of big, like, rotating blades on it or something, the whole thing's spinning around. They do actually say, oh, they called this the meat grinder or something, didn't they? Yeah, and and I was reading uh, a bit of behind-the-scenes stuff online about this, and apparently they had real trouble filming on that set because the the, the camera crew would get motion sickness going down there (laughs) because, you know, the the whole thing really was spinning Mm -hmm. around, and and apparently more than once a cameraman was just kind of walking down there and just fell over. (laughs) (laughs) It reminded me of a scene from Galaxy Quest, you know, where they go back into that that thing where there's all those big piston-like things going up and down, and they're like, what the hell are these? And, oh, I don't know, they, they... they were in uh, episode 57 and we had to kind of keep them in or something. Um, yeah, it's uh, a totally nonsensical thing. That so they get to the other end of and then beyond the door is the uh, the gravity drive, which is this incredibly ominous looking thing with, with a big sphere in the middle and these three rotating forms that, that spin around it. And then it's the whole thing is is in a in a spherical room lined with, with kind of spikes. three foot long yeah. metal spikes ending in sharp points pointing at this big sphere in the middle. Yeah, I mean, you and I were discussing this the other day, Paul. I mean, both of us saw that room at some stage and thought, at some point, someone is going to get impaled on one of those spikes. Sure, they're going to fall <laughs> up off the gangplank up up above or the gangway up above. Uh, they're going to get pushed into one. You know, sooner or later, someone is going to get skewered. Yeah, I know. What a waste. I mean, 
forget about the idea of why you'd have the spikes around this in a you know a spacecraft like that anyway but why oh why oh why would you use that bit of set design in a horror film and not skewer someone on it i don't well, know there, a... there was a point where one of the people fell or one of the crew yeah, fell and she missed yeah, she, yeah. she lands <laughs> on the ground she misses all the bloody spikes <laughs> i was thinking that they've used all the budget by that point on the special effects they can't do the, the gory effect of <laughs> spew blood so our dude is there justin the engineer just, yeah justin yeah he kind of stood there and he's looking at the big spinny sphere thing and then all the three parts of the the, the bits that are rotating around the sphere kind of lock into position and the sphere turns into this pool of liquid yeah this is someone who is angling for a survival yeah. point isn't it yeah oh, yeah. Go on. Touch it. yeah yeah what yeah what, what bad thing can happen here yeah what it really reminded me of more than anything else was uh john carpenter's prince of darkness the mirror yes yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was very much like that, and yeah, just getting sucked into the other side well, like that. It wasn't even so much sucked in; he got he kind of prized at it a bit, almost like Stargate of uh, mm. kind of pulling it in. Oh, yeah. it's malleable. I wonder what happens when I put my fist in. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh, something yeah, so, grabbed it. So, ah! Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and at some point, he gets spat out again. Uh, yeah, well, he's got a rope on? attached to him. Yes. Uh, almost immediately, you know, one of the other crew comes along ah, yes. and, and grabs the rope and pulls him back out. But at this stage, he's catatonic. Yeah, so yeah. he'll be on the hospital bed for a while. The other thing that happens when he gets sucked in is there's this shock wave that goes out throughout the ship and it damages the Lewis and Clark. It uh, vents a bit of atmosphere, puts a tear in the, the hull. So they're going to have to do repairs before they get off the ship. Justin does wake up again uh, fairly quickly. He's taken off to the sick bay, but he, he wakes up uh, a short while after that, and he basically wanders off to an airlock and starts pushing buttons. And, and the rest of the crew catch up with him, don't they? And they're looking through and sort of banging on the door, yeah. but he's just carrying on to unlock the airlock. Muttering about, the dark, the horrible dark. And, yeah, I mean, what happens is they, they don't manage to stop the, the airlock from opening. They don't manage to talk him out. But uh, you have the captain who's outside supervising the repairs, who speeds in on his spacesuit, knocks him back into the airlock, and they manage to disengage it. But not until, you know, he's leaked a lot of blood out from his eyes and had damage to his lungs. And You made some comment about the special effects for this, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I was really disappointed because I was hoping to see some eye-popping goodness. That scene where he's, oh my god, it's starting! And you see all the veins start pop up on his arms. And then he covers his eyes and you can see blood leaking out from between his fingers where his eye sockets. You think, ah, oh, something really bad's happened to his eyes, they're covering it up, oh great. And then as he floats out the airlock, his eyes are open. And you think, they look normal. No problem there, he's just, a lot of blood coming out of his mouth. Where, where's the popping? Where's, where's all the, the scarring and all that? No, nothing. Well, on the bright side, you do get some quality eye gouging later in the film, so... Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I, I have to say that actually, I mean, the way that they handled the effects of him being thrown out into space, from what I've read about what actually happens in the human body, barring all that blood leaking out in the first place, I, I, I think it probably handles it closer to reality than most other science fiction films do. This film was nothing if not realistic, Scott. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely a lot more realistic than what happens in Blake 7 anyway. What? I'll have none of that. <laughs> Otherwise, if you teleport someone out into open void, you explode in Blake, in Blake 7. <laughs> oh, right, yes. Yes, and, and yeah. Of course, there's all the stuff in Total Recall as well with the people's eyes bugging out of their heads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, back to Event Horizon. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually, that, there's another thinking of the term Event Horizon, apart from being obviously the name of the ship. 
it comes from the term um, the outer edge of a black hole. Uh-huh. They mentioned black holes once in the whole film. Once. <laughs> <laughs> yes. One other thing that, that happens, I think, around this time, or perhaps a bit earlier, is they switch the gravity back on, and you do get one very cool moment in this where you get that frozen body that suddenly drops out from, from floating around in space, lands on the ground, and then just shatters into loads of pieces. Very, very Terminator 2. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we get some more hallucinations with uh, the medical technician, Peters, having a vision of her son with uh, terrible lesions on his legs. And we kind of know these things are hallucinations and they're, they're presented in a very kind of spooky, otherworldly way that we know that, that this person isn't actually there. But we seem to get a few of these weird hallucinations thrown well, in with people that we don't really know who they are. Yeah, Miller gets some as well. The captain mm. uh, gets some of a burning man. These aren't set up very well, and this is something that we'll, we'll get back to uh, later on. They go some way towards building up atmosphere, but it's, it's a very disjointed bit of storytelling. And the last hallucination we see out of this batch is uh, Weir seeing his wife again, this time on board the Event Horizon. Once again, she has no eyes, and this time she's trying to convince him to join her. And it's becoming clear now that Weir is flip-flopping. He's, he's not really with the crew anymore, I think. Yeah, I mean, we, we got that, that hint in the very opening scene that he's been somewhat damaged by his wife's death. We learn a little more about that later on. So obviously, being given an opportunity to join her once again is providing a temptation. Now, they get hold of a, a video log from the crew of the Event Horizon on CD. Was it on CD? They yeah. pull it the seed. This is when you first see That's the floating. That's pretty cutting edge tech. Yeah, I know. Well, it's it, could, when you... it could have been a DVD. I mean, it's yeah, the future. It could have been, could have been Blu-ray, Matt. It could have been fucking <laughs> Blu-ray. <laughs> that wasn't a blue hint of colour in that at all. That's when you first More see like the, the HD DVD. <laughs> yeah. That's the first time when you see the floating body is it does that almost Jaws-like moment of floating uh, into her as she's pulling the CD out of the drive. Oh, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. This video log shows, uh, I think, them before they go through the, the black hole yeah. with the event horizon. Uh, well, you know, they turn the, the drive on. And then, then there's this bizarre clip of them in the extra dimension, we might call it, you know, yeah. once they've, when the drive is turned on. And th- there is lots of screaming and blood. Well, there's a lot of screaming and a lot of very um, fragmentary, distorted images which are hard to make out. Yeah. But it obviously looks pretty unpleasant. In amongst all this stuff... They also get the entirety of that message in Latin. I've been listening to the distress signal. And I, um... think I made a mistake in the translation. (sighs) Go on. I thought it said liberate me. Save me. But it's not me. It's liberate tutte me. Save yourself. And it gets worse. There. I think that says X in fairies. Save yourself from hell. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and I like it how we didn't need any, <laughs> any scripting to do that. 
So Miller and DJ, uh, Jason Isaacs, deduced that the ship's gravity drive has, has opened up some sort of gateway to another dimension. And clearly the, the, the previous crew hadn't had a great time there. But Yeah, well, there's the implication that they actually entered hell. And do that is it at this point that they decide to try and destroy the gravity drive or to to separate uh, the ship yes, from it? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I think it's after after they see the video of what's happened to the rest of the crew. At that point, Miller just says, yeah. "We're leaving." Yeah, and of course, I mean, the other thing they they theorise at this stage is that this trip through hell has actually made the event horizon itself into a sentient uh, being. But Weir seems quite keen on this idea. Now, the film, has, uh, up until now, it's kind of been setting it all up, but now descends, I thought, into a kind of bit of a bit of a slasher mode, really. Yeah. It's a lot of kind of running around, people getting killed. Yeah, it, it certainly accelerates at this stage. So when Miller decides that he's going to destroy the event horizon, Weir you know, goes off uh, and, and uh, sets up um, what we discover is you know, an explosive device to destroy the Lewis and Clark. When I look back at that scene, I can't help but think this is an unnecessarily long fuse on that bomb. Sean Pertwee's character finally uh, passes his spot hidden roll and goes, ah, blood in a blanket, rip it open. There are six seconds left on the bomb and you can clearly see a button that says disarm. Stop this thing from blowing up. So what does he do? He looks at it and goes, oh, I'm going to die. In and a very long minute. <laughs> Boom. And he does. Yes, yeah. yes. The Lewis and Clark blows up. It kills him. Cooper, who was repairing the, the ship on the outside. Oh, uh, Cooper. Yeah, the comic, kind of the comic really off into space, yes, isn't he? The, uh, yeah. the but he's really not killed. Yeah. He's kind yes. of thrust away. Yes. <laughs> and uh, he will return. And, and yeah, yeah, the rest of the ship is shaken. As, as they're getting ready to load everything onto the Lewis and Clark, they decide, well, we need to go back to the engineering to pick up all the CO2 scrubs. Because it's one of the plot points made that they've only got so long before the air turns to CO2 and they basically their, their, their atmosphere becomes poisonous. A couple of them run off to go and get these and load them back onto the, uh, the Lewis and Clark before it blows up. And Peters sees, oh look, it's my son! And goes off in that typical, I'm going to chase after what is blatantly a hallucination because he can't possibly be here in space. And then falls to her death and misses every spike on the way down. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Weir then uh, kills DJ in the medical lab, mm-hmm. uh, basically cuts him open and leaves his body hanging there. V- very Science of the Lambs-esque. Yeah, apparently yeah. in the original uncut version of it, this was supposed to be much nastier, that he was supposed to have been left up there alive with all his internal organs hanging out, <laughs> which I, I, I think would have been a much stronger scene, but apparently this was one of the things that they ended up having to tone down in order uh, to get an R rating. So after DJ's been attacked in the med bay and the Miller finds the body strung up, um, he decides, in a, almost a quite, I'm going to get, I'm going to track you down, kind of bomb villain style um, exposition, turns up where they've got equipment stored, pulls out one of the bolt oh, yes. guns that they've seen repairing the, uh, the Lewis and Clark with, mm. says, you don't want to leave your ship, Dr. Weir? You never will. And then loads up on this big ass gun and then goes off to, uh, goes off to the bridge to try and find him. Um, finds Stark, puts his gun down conveniently, it goes out of shot. Miraculously, the captain has smelling salts in a pack on his arm. <laughs> Wakes her up, <laughs> of course goes, goes to pick up his gun, and his gun's not there! What a shock! It's almost as if it's a horror film. And miraculously, the gun has ended up with Weir in the captain's chair, pointing it at him. Again, all it was, all it needed to be was a big white cat that he was stroking. It really well, resembled I, a bomb villain moment. At this point, has Weir pulled his eyes out? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's a big, nice gouging and such, because Weir's been down to the core, found the body on the floor, and he's like, oh no, what happened here? Oh, it's my wife, don't worry. 
Ah, she committed suicide, and now I've ripped my own eyes out. Yes, as you do. Hmm. Weir overpowers Miller and starts the countdown on the gravity drive. So in ten minutes, the uh, the drive is going to automatically kick off and suck them back into hell. Which everyone apart from Weir sees as being suboptimal. So we now see Cooper, who was the guy who got blasted off into space when the Lewis and Clark blew up. And we th- kind of thought, well, that's an end of him. But no, so he that's manages it. to use his, his little uh, oh, his rockets on, on blasters so, yeah. on his jets yeah. on his suit. It reminded me of the end of Dark Star, really, when uh, you know they're, they're jumping and flying down into the planet's gravity with the bomb. But it, he, uh, it, it didn't remind you of that game of Traveller where the ship just kept moving away from you. Yeah, then. that as well. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> So he, he ends up at like the, the, the window of the bridge looking in and waving and uh, there's, what is it, is Weir and somebody else? Yeah, Weir, Miller and the captain. Stark, yeah, yeah. Still, still fighting over the weapon. And uh, um, basically they, they end up shooting the window with the harpoon gun. Cooper is then blasted back into space yeah and uh, well, where is well, sucked out he's, after he's, no he manages to cut i mean he he does end up surviving i can't remember what no i can't quite from. remember how that happens but I, I think he clambers back in through the airlock afterwards or something. yeah he does yes yeah. yes because i think i think it doesn't it doesn't explicitly show it because the only thing that you see is him going oh shit when he sees the uh the harpoon come towards he him it's kind of like the, yeah. yeah like you say the comedy uh is the comic relief, yeah. yeah. I, and you had this incredibly long decompression scene going on with everyone grabbing hold of stuff and mm-hmm. trying not to get sucked out. I don't know how much bloody air is in this ship. Because, Lots, because it's a huge ship! <laughs> but, but even then, I mean, this, the, you know, this is blasting out at hurricane speed for God knows how long. When you get explosive decompression, it's called that because it all gets sucked out at once. And yet this goes on for what seems like ten minutes. Oh, yeah, and it's that total recall moment, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> at the end of the explosive decompression scene, you've got Miller and Stark outside the bridge. The, uh, the whole area's been sealed off. They meet up with Cooper, who comes in through an airlock, saying, Don't hit me! You have all the good guys, essentially, in one place together, realising there's a countdown... We'll use Weir's original plan of blowing the ship in two, using the forward decks as a life raft and getting the hell out of here. This is where another continuity error pops up, because they were said right at the very start of the, um, the section where they're on the event horizon, to saying that, oh, all the communications are shot, none of the, uh, none of the antennas are working, no one's coming to get us, no one knows we're out here. And yet, mysteriously, the emergency beacon still works and can be heard by the outside universe. <laughs> So Cooper goes off to get that um, to go and set that off. Um, Stark goes to prep the pods for them to survive in, while Miller goes out and does the brave thing of um, setting the bombs ready. Yeah, and and ends up going down to where the gravity drive is and sees this burning man again. And we've discovered at some point that the man is a manifestation of his guilt, that it's someone he left behind mm-hmm. to die. While he's down there, he also discovers that despite we're getting sucked out into space, he now manifests again in the drive area um, and seems to have turned into some kind of ghost or supernatural manifestation. Who's got his eyes back? There is this fight scene between the two where um, Miller does actually manage to hold them off for long enough that he gets to the explosives and sets them off, sacrificing himself in the process. And the rear section of the ship gets pulled into a black hole as the gravity drive activates. So the rest of them go into stasis, and 72 days later, the event horizon is boarded by a rescue party. But we're kind of wondering, is this really happening as stuff happens? I was, anyway. Yeah, Stark sees that one of the rescuers is actually a weir and starts screaming, but then she wakes up screaming and, and you know they're getting rescued all over again. 
And this time, you know, the, one of the rescuers calls for a sedative to calm her down, and we see, you know, the doors closing behind them in a very ominous way. Roll credits. Yeah, and I, I don't know, I, I thought that was a bit of a shit wrap-up there, and that they were, they obviously had a whole bunch of different ideas on how to, to end it, and just mashed them together in a way that none of them actually made sense. Yes. <laughs> So, what do we think of Event Horizon? I think this is a film that had a lot of potential and had a really good idea behind it and suffered very badly in the execution. Paul and I discussed this. We had the same reaction that we'd both seen it a long time ago and remembered it quite fondly and then watched it again before doing this episode. And, you know, both of us were sort of thinking, oh, hang on, this isn't actually very good. Yeah, (laughs) I was thinking, oh... Damn, this is a bit shit, actually. All these years, I've had it in my mind. Wow, this is an amazing film. And I can remember <laughs> friends sort of saying, oh, it was really dark and, um, you know, it went to really disturbing places. And Which, to be fair, it did. It did, but, yeah, it's just a bit clunky and, and the way yeah. it's put together and, and everything. And I can see that, you know, it was a longer film that was edited down. That seems quite well, apparent. That, that, I mean, that's a big part of it. But, I mean, before we get into that and why, you know, perhaps didn't work as well as it could have, what's your impression, Matt, having watched it again recently? Um, I think it pretty much my, my original opinion of it holds up. Okay. It's okay. It's it's nothing what I'd call special. It has a few jump scare moments that I don't like because I just despise jump scares. But otherwise, yeah, it's got a nice intriguing idea at the heart of it. Yeah. But it's a little bit too slashery. It's a little bit clunky and could have really done with being longer. Well, I think- I, that, that's the thing. I mean, it originally was a lot longer. I mean, the, the, the version that we watched, uh, yeah, I'm not sure about you, Matt, uh, but the version Paul and I watched on Netflix uh, is the 97-minute cut. Uh, I think the one you watched was maybe about a minute longer. But yeah. the original film was 130 minutes long. And it was cut down very, very heavily by the studio for a couple of reasons. One is the test audience they showed it to absolutely hated it. The main thing that, that put them off was that the film was too gory. Apparently, you know, that bit where we see you know, the, the, a very compressed idea of what happened to the original crew, that was something like a 10-minute scene originally, uh, with, with lots of mutilation and sexual violence and blood and gore and guts. I mean, it could have had a bit more of that, but 10 minutes would seem somewhat excessive. You can never get enough cannibalism and torture. But, um, yeah, so it was partly because of the audience test reaction and partly to avoid a threatened NC-17 rating that the studio cut it down quite heavily. Uh, But it wasn't just the gore they cut out. They, they, They cut out a lot of stuff earlier in the film as well. And this is, I think, one of the things that makes the film fatally flawed, that you have all these scenes of, um, you know, the hallucinations and people experiencing regrets and horrors from their past all over again or new manifestations of them. But they're not fucking set up. No, we've no idea who these people are. We get the impression that it's the Doctor's son or that it's somebody's wife or whatever. But, but I mean, the, the problems with this film, I think, run deeper than, than that, that, uh, that heavy cut, which is uh, the studio, apparently, I mean, this is quite bizarre to think of these days. The studio had grave concerns about Titanic, uh, which they were you know, also putting out in this year. Titanic was running late. It wasn't going to get a release for the summer months. They weren't convinced that it was actually going to make its money. And so 
Event Horizon was the hope to actually make money during the summer months and give them a bit of a buffer to get through all this. The idea of Titanic sinking, a bit like the ship, spoiler alert, just seems weird. It was the highest grossing film of all time when it came out. Yeah, as opposed to Event Horizon. (laughs) Yes, yeah, yeah, it was bombed. This forced them to rush the film into production, so it got far less pre-production. The editing was also rushed, I mean, even before this this hack down from 130 minutes, that um, apparently the Directors Guild of America gives, uh, as part of a standard contract, that a director will get 10 weeks of post-production in which to edit the film down. Because of pressure from the studio, they edited in something like five or six. And so I think between all of these things and, you know, the heavy cuts, that what could have been a much better developed, much more interesting film, uh, certainly a much more visceral film, just ended up being at times a bit of an incoherent mess. I know definitely the bit for me that seems, well, the two bits actually that seem a bit of a letdown for me is one Weir's sudden and almost incomprehensible flip to going, hey, I'm a bad guy! Yeah. Yes. And then the second one being the absolutely shit dialogue that Justin has. The dark or the dark inside me. It sounds so fucking cheesy. It just (laughs) totally and utterly destroys my enjoyment of the film. (laughs) At least in those points anyway. Yeah. Because I remembered it as a really good film up until the point it kind of turned slasher. But it, A, you know, it wasn't that great before that did that and b it turns slasher really early i still fancy you watching the original cut of it unfortunately that seems very unlikely to happen despite the fact that it bombed at the cinema event horizon proved to be something of a success on home video and dvd uh, afterwards and the studio did look into the idea of actually doing a restored cut or a director's cut. But the problem they found was that the cut footage had either been improperly stored or just thrown away. There were rumours that a couple of years ago, someone involved with the production did find a, a video recording of the complete cut somewhere. I you know, don't know what kind of condition it's in. And there was talk about restoring that and, and releasing that. But that's gone quiet over the last couple of years, so who knows if that'll ever happen. And if it, if it does happen, I'd be interested as a curiosity because I think this is a really interesting idea. It's a film that is dripping with potential and I'd like to see it reach at least some of that. Dripping being the operative word. Yeah, <laughs> especially when you have the gallons of unnecessary blood. Yeah. Like, gallons of blood are never <laughs> unnecessary. Just ask Countess <laughs> Bathory. For horror and Lovecraft fans, I think the whole idea of this other dimension, you know, that's, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, now, I mean, this is an interesting point. I mean, do you interpret that other dimension they went into as actually being hell, or was it just so alien? Not in the least, I don't... How about you, Matt? Yeah, again, because there's no kind of religious context up until that point, and I know that the line comes up, I think it's from Weir, where he says, hell is just a word, Um, the reality is far worse, that it is just something chaotic on the other side but again i think that's also for me is also a bit of a letdown i could see some parallels between this and say hellraiser that you know the the the, whatever it is that's that's beyond there is almost a bit like the cenobites from hellraiser and and where they live that it is a place which blurs the lines between pain and pain and pleasure for a human being to go there is going to be a transformative experience and probably not in a good way 
it's Cenobites in space! But then they did that as the fourth Hellraiser film anyway, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, sadly. I've known you a long time. You never told me that. That's just it, DJ. I, I never told anybody. But this ship knew about it. It knows my fears. It knows my secrets. Gets inside your head and it shows you. Let's take a look at what we can take from Event Horizon for our gaming. We can loot and pillage this as much as we like. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that leapt out to me is something that I, I like doing an awful lot. And something that you know, I do particularly in convention games and you know, try to do in campaigns, which is to take elements of uh, a character's background and weave those into the larger story and use those as, as hooks to hang horror on. Yeah, I think sometimes there's a feeling, that, oh, well, not everything in my background has to come into the game because that wouldn't feel realistic. No, screw that. I mean, if there are things in the background, and it's particularly if it's just going to be a one-off session then try and bring, you know, you've got license to bring as many of those in as you want, really, because they're not going to come in afterwards because that's it, the game's over. Well, I think that's more of an argument for having tight-focused backgrounds. Uh, yeah, I, I've seen you know, plenty of players who will quite happily write three, four, five-page backgrounds or more for their characters. 90% of that stuff will never influence play. But, and, you know, if you want to go off and write a short story, fine. Don't expect me as a GM to read all that mm-hmm. and try to find ways of working it all in. Give me, you know, two or three paragraphs of stuff I can actually use bullet points bullet points <laughs> yeah but you know how do we use that to good effect because we're saying in event horizon i mean we kind of looked at it and thought well actually do we want to talk about this because is it that good a film but we actually figured that there were some things that we can take for gaming in a way that the film hadn't done it very well that we could yeah. reflect on to try and do better in our gaming it, so it is less inspiration and more of a cautionary tale <laughs> so how did they do it in our opinion, rather poorly in failing to take to make the most of the player character backgrounds. Not enough setup. Yeah, not exactly. enough setup. But but when I when I sit down with my player character at your table and I read my background, how is the setup? Well, I mean that's a fundamentally different thing at a gaming table because if it's you know, I mean like, using that example you used there, that makes it sound like a convention game where the the GM has handed the player a pregen. But alternatively, yeah, you know, maybe it is something you created yourself. Yeah, and you either way, the yeah. GM. Either way, both you and the GM know what those those things in your background are. So you only need to have a passing reference to them in order to to infer the rest of that background there. In a film where the audience doesn't know that stuff, it's a bit different. So what I'd liken this more to is something I've seen in a few indie games I've played and perhaps, you know, in a few more trad games. Someone will spontaneously come up with something at the table to justify an action or a bit of background or whatever, and it's sort of, oh, yeah, well, what if so-and-so is actually my ex-wife? Um, yeah, and never mentioned that the character was married or divorced before, and it's never informed the character during play. Well, you know, and, and she's now suddenly involved in this particular aspect, and that NPC is her, and it's sort of, okay, yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that creates an interesting dynamic. But because it's introduced with no con- context, it's had no build-up, there's been no emotional resonance before, it's such feels like a very empty and superficial gesture what i think as well this this film shows 
sometimes I've gone along to, to run an early playtest of a game or, you know, a half-developed idea I've had and thought, oh, that's a, that's a really strong premise. That's a good idea. Yeah, I've got a rough idea of the location. Yeah. We've got some ideas that all plug into this. Magic will happen when I run it. Oh, the players are quite excited and they'll yeah. run with it themselves, yeah. Scott. Yeah, yeah. You don't need to do too much. I, you've got I, a cool idea. And, and sometimes, yeah, with the right I've group of this. players, that's all you need. Well, sometimes. Well, the trouble is, I think... You get a cool idea and a scenario that is really good and you run it and maybe it goes in a direction that you weren't really expecting and you kind of fool yourself that, oh, well, actually, I don't really need to do all that work. If I just turn up with a cool premise, that same thing will happen again. They'll go off in crazy directions. I don't need to think about some options and and things that I can throw in if it sort of gets a bit lame and a bit flat because, wow, it'll be amazing. It might be. But, but, it might but not be. sometimes you're just sitting there watching the players look at you. Um, yeah, that's a pretty you're, you're, sinking you're, feeling, isn't yeah, it, when that's happening? You're willing them to do something; they're willing you to give them something to do, and yeah, it just feels like you're stuck in a morass. Yeah. That, that's the last scene of The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, where everyone's pointing guns at each other, thinking someone's going to do something sometime. Yeah. We hope. Except in this case, the guns are dice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I get you know that's a, a caution another cautionary tale I guess Scott I mean yeah. what do you do here you I mean well, it, it's not enough just to sit down with a cool idea you need I think no. you need well, to I, have I, kind I've, of backed up yourself you know to ins- have insured yourself with some good th- extra things you can yeah. throw in if not much happens and I think to have not I mean I'm not arguing that you should you know script the ending by any means but you no. should have thought through some options really yeah i mean I, uh, I i still almost never script an ending but you know if i'm running a game like that at conventions now because of experiences like that i will turn up with um a a a, a list of at least a half dozen bangs elements that i can throw in there that will force the the players to react that you know will, will give them a choice they have to make and with any luck we'll have enough repercussions depending on the choices they make to drive play after that that and i'll have npcs with strong motivations who are designed to interact with the player characters in particular ways and between those you know, you don't end up in that situation usually of sitting there you know thinking when does the magic happen when does it happen when does it start and for this film as well i would say that it felt like a cool scenario and the, the director the the gm hit the beats maybe in the wrong order you know we like mm. i said we kind of got onto the slasher stuff too quickly and then we sort of stopped caring about the characters i think if we'd have had a bit more character development up front we might have had a better payoff later on and and again you know in the full version of the film that might actually well it might be so but the, we have we can only talk about the yes. version we get one thing admittedly that i love to do as a player whenever i play games <laughs> I know where this is going already. <laughs> Blow shit up. <laughs> that too. Yeah. I think that's more me. You know, I, I set things on fire. Yeah, yeah usually me. <laughs> You're the GM and it's my character that ends up on fire every bloody time. Every time, yes. <laughs> um, no, I love to be the bad guy. Hmm. And having PCs ally with the antagonists, such in the way that Weir does, I would love to play that. Yes. <laughs> it's a great thing to happen. But I think as a GM... If it's a one shot, I run it once, and you playing your character, Matt, you side with the baddies, and I think, oh, that's pretty cool. That'll <laughs> happen every time, but it, it won't. When designing a scenario or campaign and thinking that a player is going to be happy to act in that way or that is going to kind of take the bait 
and go down that route. You know, a lot of players wouldn't want to do that. So you, you might present them with that situation, but they'd fight really hard against mm-hmm. it and fair play to them. Well, it's, it's kind of exciting if that happens. What I've seen this happen on occasions that's even more unsatisfying is, um, yeah, I can think of at least two occasions where, you know, I've had um, people playing characters who... Yeah, maybe they're not fanatics, but they abide to some kind of moral code. And you know, I'll craft a situation whereby you know, a temptation or an easy answer will be placed in their way and, and someone will offer them something that will, will help with it, but there's a price attached or some form of corruption and sort of tempting them away from the straight and narrow somewhat. And I can think of, you know, I mean, sometimes that plays off really nicely. I can think of two players who just didn't interact with it in the slightest and it's sort of, well, why would I listen to that? No. Okay. No. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I, I'm in the situation, but no. No, it's, yeah. it's not happening. Not happening. <laughs> you can never tell how players are going to react in that mm. situation. Mm. And if it does fall completely flat like that, and it's, yeah, well, of, of course, I, you know, you know it's something the Dr. Weir's player in this. Well, yeah. All right. Yeah. I've got a chance to be with my dead wife. But why would I, why, why would I want that to happen? I don't She's care dead. about her. Yeah. I'll yeah. call the police. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm here to fix the ship. So obviously I'm going to fix the ship. That, that's what it says in my character sheet. That's what my mission is. Yeah, and I think that's fine as long as you haven't set your scenario up with the expectation yes. that that player who's playing Dr. Weir has got to want to get his wife back and has got to want to turn to the, the, to the dark side, for want of a better term. Um, if you're hinging it on that, then you're asking for trouble, I think, as a yeah, GM. Absolutely. Do you think it's ever right, or, or would there be any circumstances under which you could put some kind of mechanic in place uh, to handle that. I'd be wary because the minute you get mechanics involved, it almost takes away player agency if you're trying to think of forcing them towards the dark side. That at that point, especially if the player really doesn't want to do it, that they suddenly feel forced into doing it and they think, well, why am I playing? It's just well, I might as well watch the movie. But I mean, I'm thinking of, of sort of gradual temptation. So, for example, uh, James Mullen wrote a scenario that's in the, the Dead of Night uh, second edition core book, um, the name of which escapes me, but it's... Cold Fusion? Cold Fusion, that's it. Thank you. Um, and there is a sort of gradual creeping corruption mechanic in there. And the way it's handled is that under certain circumstances, instead of losing uh, your survival points, you gain a survival point of a different colour. And, you know, something happens, if I remember correctly, when one colour outbalances the other, and when they're all replaced with one colour, then you become one of the enemy. And, yeah, because the players are bought into that from the outset, you know, at least you're explaining that as it's going on, and it's because it's a gradual thing. I've never heard of anyone really objecting to that. Most people seem to think it's a really cool idea. I think when the mechanic is coercing you in a direction, it's fine. But if the mechanic is such that it's just a kind of black and white thing and you know you've now suddenly got to follow this thing that you don't really want to do well, yeah, you I, are now the bad guy I mean, you, say, you say that but isn't that really what happens in call of cthulhu when you hit zero sand but you've got to take a massive sand hit to oh, get yeah, down that far oh, yeah, or it's a yeah. lot of erosion yeah or possibly even as the result of a bout of madness but when you hit zero sand, that's like hitting zero hit points. So in, in any game, you can be affected by physical violence. Yeah. So it's not that... Um, well, yeah, well, okay, we'll take Call of Cthulhu as an example. You hit zero sand, you're not suddenly a bad guy. You're not, you're not now asked to side with the enemy. 
So you're not your motivation hasn't changed. You've been kind of removed from the game the same way you would be if you were, you know, you know, in in, in a combat or whatever. I mean, I think there's there's a thing with insanity where if you lose uh, enough sanity to go temporarily insane in Call of Cthulhu, but it is it is a temporary thing, and actually the it, it's against your volition. But you know, you have a bout of madness or something, and you're acting out of character. But that is kind of imposed upon you. Yeah. It's not it's not a change of motivation for your character in an ongoing way. You've also got, though, in Call of Cthulhu, the corruption of the backstory elements. Again, that's not yeah. quite as coherent, you know, not, not quite as all-encompassing a thing. I mean, these are all sort of stabs towards that. Um, I mean, I'm wondering whether mechanically you could maybe not quite mirror it, but at least use a combination of those things. If the important person on Wiz's character sheet was um, his wife, you know, his, yeah. his, his wife, then you know he has a, a he goes indefinitely insane, has a bout of madness, and the keeper rewrites that description somewhat so that he's now completely obsessed with bringing her back and hands her back to the player. Do you think that's fair? I think to some degree you've kind of got to react in accordance with the player, and if you sense them really bulking at that maybe you cut to the scene where okay well when you come back to your senses you know you've you've got a big syringe out and you're injecting your wife's dead body with something now it's kind of over to you um, and you've kind of regained your senses but to tell them that they've got to now carry on playing in that direction seems to take away their agency but i think to temporarily take it away seems fine to me but then you kind of cut back to giving them free will again otherwise you know they're not what are they playing they're not really playing what they want to do yeah they're just sat like i said earlier so they're sat watching the film effectively yeah they feel like they're a pawn doing your bidding yeah which is not fun in the slightest speaking of things that aren't fun um (laughs) (laughs) you're building this point up aren't you yes there's the whole idea at some stage in here that at least the way it's presented at the time, that the protagonists are completely screwed. When that bomb goes off on board the Lewis and Clark, they don't have their ride out of there. And it's, it's set up initially to look like, you know, their air is running out. There's no mention at the time of them being able to survive by going into stasis. Yeah. And in this particular case, yeah, I, I, I think I've certainly played with some groups that in that situation where they suddenly think, right, you know, there's no way off here. You know, the, the, the life support's going to run out soon. You know, even if we disable the drive and stop it jumping off into hell, you know, in, in a few minutes, we're still going to die anyway. All right, yeah, might be able to stop us being dragged off to hell, but that's the best we can hope for. I no longer care about this game. Mm-hmm. One other thing that maybe going harking back to an earlier point that suddenly... Um, suddenly came into my mind is that the matter of consistency not so much in terms of story but in terms of how much the players get spotlight there are how many members of the crew there there must be half a dozen at least oh at least yeah three of them get hallucinations yeah if i was the playing one of those other members of the crew especially the one who ends up basically being in a pod for the rest of the bloody game (laughs) That'd be you, Matt. (laughs) I have been in a game where I've seen something happen to happen like that and felt really sorry for the poor sod who was out of game for all that length of time. Yeah. That's what your character would do though. Lie there motionless for the rest (laughs) of the game. Just just be a vegetable in a pod, it's fine. Um You mean like a pea? Yeah, in a pea in a pod, yay! It's a shame it wasn't Peter because it was a J, but it should have been Peter's, they should have swapped the name around names around. But anyway. 
that I'd be, if I was one of those other players that didn't get one of those visions, I'd be thinking, I've been left out. There was nothing set up for the other three. Hmm. And one thing I thought that the film did do quite well was in that little bit of footage that they find on the, the CD of the fate of the, the crew of the Event Horizon and the, the hell that they went through figuratively and literally. It did a very good job of showing what the stakes were for the player characters, the yeah. protagonists, yeah, by yeah. showing them happening to a bunch of NPCs first. And yeah. I think that's a really cool plot device to use in RPGs. I mean, one thing I've, you know, I've complained about a lot through this is, you know, not having set the stakes up and not having, you know, informed the players properly. This time, I think this is, you know, a thing that it does right and something we can definitely learn from as a positive example. So, yeah, I mean, if you can find ways of letting the PCs discover, you know, crime scene photographs or reports or video footage, photographs, uh, first-hand testimonies or whatever that show the consequences of what might happen to them if they fail then, yeah, I, th- I think that's a pretty powerful motivator. Mm. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is that time in the episode once again when we thank all the generous people who have given us money. Uh, we have a Patreon account and a great many generous people uh, have given us standing contributions, which uh, we use to pay for our hosting costs, our bandwidth costs, equipment costs, uh, basically all the, the things that go into running a podcast and allow us to keep the good friends of Jackson Lies going. So thank you to each and every one of you. And we have a few new people to thank again this week. So our first thanks today goes out to Mark Grian. Uh, I hope, Mark, I'm pronouncing your surname correctly. Forgive me if I'm not, but a big thanks. Yes, thank you very much, Mark. Indeed. Cheers, Mark. Cheers. And thank you very much to Lars Christian Detlefsen. Indeed. Cheers, Lars. Yes. Thank you very much, Lars. Cheers, Lars. Hey. And also our thanks go out to Dan Dom. We hope we're pronouncing your surname right there. We had a couple. We had a bit of a debate on how to pronounce that one. Anyway, cheers, Dan. Cheers, Dan. Yes, cheers, Dan. Thank you very much. As regular listeners will know, we do something special for those brave, brave people who back us at the $5 level. We sing their praises like angels from above. Is this like... The description of the Cenobites and Hellraisers being angels to some like angels? demons to others. Yeah. I was got, I was getting more of that impression of gargoyles leering down at you with their tongue sticking out from the corner of a cathedral, vomiting music all over you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm picturing Matt with lots of little nails stuck in his head. Come closer, <laughs> Matt. <laughs> I, I'll tell you what: the screams that he'd make when you hammered those nails in wouldn't sound any worse than what we'll end up with. <laughs> Where we're going, you won't need singing voices. <laughs> Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> and the first song today goes out to Jonathan Powell. Oh, yes. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, yes, and good luck. Yeah, brace yourself, mate. Calling Jonathan Powell. Thank you. Thank you. Calling Jonathan Powell. Is anyone receiving? Jonathan Powell. Jonathan Powell, are you receiving? Are you receiving? Jonathan Powell. Are you receiving? Jonathan Powell, are you receiving us? <laughs> 
Jonathan Powell, are you receiving us? Jonathan Powell, are you receiving us? And our next cacophony goes out to Anthony Lee Dudley, very good friend of ours. How dare you call it a cacophony? But yes, thank you, Anthony. <laughs> yes, thank you very much, Ant. Anthony Lee Dudley. 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 So as usual, we've had some feedback on our episodes on social media. Scott, you've got one from Mordrigan? Uh, yeah, Mordrigan on Twitter um, commented on our last episode, the Memory Hole episode, uh, with his own suggestion. Uh, he said, uh, you know, what I'd like to see in the Memory Hole, GMs who don't roleplay NPCs or describe locations. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, I, I'll go along with this. Yeah, certainly as a GM, both of those things are my delight to do. I, I get probably too carried away with both of those things. I remember your um, God, was it the undead monkey or ghoul or whatever it was that we uh, played in? <laughs> well, uh, was the, it in the, the blood monkey. That was uh, it, the blood monkey. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, and also I think if you as GM don't role play your characters and don't describe things, your players aren't going to do that either, unless yeah. they're really forward-thinking and, and um, assertive. They, they tend to take a lead from the GM, so you need to role-play your characters. Also from a regular listener, Brett Kramer. This guy's really taken on a pretty masochistic project here. <laughs> um, starts with, I've mostly worked my way through Durless collaborations with Lovecraft on my blog, though I'll confess there are, there's a few more to go. My summaries might be an easier read than Durless original. Yeah, that, that's that's damning with faint praise, but <laughs> no, no, they 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 really are well written summaries. Um, I've been through a few of them on on Brett's blog now, and yeah, he, he really is taking a bullet for us. Um, yeah, Brett is reading Derleth, so you don't have to, <laughs> and it's been quite encouraging, I suppose, reading uh, Brett's posts because. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, it's been 30-odd years since I read Derlith, and I was worried that my... I, I, I sort of built him up to be a lot worse in my memory than he actually was. But no, reading through Brett's summaries, if anything, he's even bloody worse than I remember. Well, I need to go back and reread these then. I can remember quite enjoying some of the Derleth stories. Although there is a question that lingers from myself. I'm wondering, will Brett read Lumley so we don't have to? <laughs> oh, Brett, Brett yeah, you, you've already suffered enough for your art here. <laughs> D- don't do this to yourself. Don't, man, don't. And also over, over on G+, Trevor Hurst posts saying, You guys mentioned Lou Zocchi. I saw him last week. Great guy. I bought his combat rules for World War II aircraft dogfights and attended his lecture. Listen to this, Matt. About how to roll dice. He does not recommend rolling on glass at all. But well, Matt, at least that... I don't roll dice. At least I don't roll on glass. But shit, now I know what I've been doing wrong all these years. <laughs> well, you haven't. You need to go to Lou Zotti's lecture. When I was at Gen Con, I saw that was on the sh- on the schedule, but I didn't actually get to it. I think maybe it was the same night as the Ennis or something like that. But he gives a whole talk on how to roll dice. 
That could cure you, Matt. Yeah, I find out suddenly how they roll at the proper end of the spectrum. Yeah, in fact, you need to sign up with Luzotti as like a test subject so you can discover <laughs> what you're doing wrong. I, well, I mean, I, I mean, as much as I respect being Mr. Zocchi or Colonel Zocchi and, and his, his expertise on the subject, I think what you need to do is sign up with a statistician who can do a study on you <laughs> because you, you break all the laws of probability, Matt. Yeah, just yeah. if there's a shit result at one end of the bell curve, I'm going to find it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you either need to be the subject of a mathematical PhD thesis or a study by the SPR. One of the two. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, we had a little suggestion from our, our good friend Ollie Palmer on Google+, um, where he was talking about Plan 9 from Outer Space. Oh, and God. he said, I would love to hear the good friends review this, uh, the worst film ever made. It's not the worst film, but it's close. And finally, what are our overall thoughts about Event Horizon? We've established, I think, that we thought this was a good, strong premise. It had a lot of good ideas in it, but it was failed in its its execution. I do think that it's still a, a film that's worth seeing. Uh, for all its flaws. I think so, because I think there aren't many science fiction slash horror films out there that spring to my mind. Not that really are a blend of the two. And this really is a tro- proper blend of the two. Yeah, them- thematically on that level, it works really well. It's just that the story itself has a few holes. It wasn't built up as much as it could have been. And it definitely has some weaknesses. But stylistically, hell yeah, it's a success. It'd be great for a remake. If somebody mm. you know wanted to remake it and do a really good job of it, that'd be awesome. Because uh, yeah. there's some really good material there. Just, you know, as Matt said, just not ultimately executed that well yeah i, I agree I, I think you know as you were saying earlier paul it's, it's one of the best examples i've seen of the mix of science fiction and horror i'd love to see that done justice i mean i i think the only film i've seen that can match it for that that weird interpretation of you know almost supernatural horror seen through a science fiction lens is one i mentioned earlier which is prince of darkness and mm-hmm. I think the two have got you know, a fair amount of material in common, or at least a fair amount of thematic uh, ideas in common. I love that film. Out of the two, I'd say Prince of Darkness is probably the more successful one. Mm. I know, yeah, it, all right, it doesn't take base on board a spaceship, but it is about that sort of blurring of our ideas of supernatural evil and hell mm. and alien influence and, and where, where do we draw the line between them. Yeah, you'll not be saved by the Father, you'll not be saved by the Holy Ghost. In fact, you will not be saved. Mm. Yeah. It's a film that's, that's definitely worth seeing for inspiration as a curiosity I'm, I can't regret having watched it again, because I, yeah. had, I, I, I had... I quite enjoyed watching it, I have to say. No, I, I had such fond memories of having seen it 20 years ago, oh. that watching it again sort of soured that. Um, no, I can't say that. I wouldn't go that far. I think I, th- I did find myself chuckling at it in a few places, especially the, yeah. the meat grinder corridor. That is <laughs> yes. just... Unnecessary meat grinder. Yeah. Well, I think that wraps up our thoughts about Event Horizon. So it's a good night from me. It's cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com
we're leaving.